That's going to be a good day. It turns out the answer to my problems wasn't at the bottom of this pint of ice cream. But the important thing is that I tried. <laughs> Mother Nature just be out here throwing temperatures like Powerball numbers. 66, 40, 33, 58, 24, 13. When I was young, I was poor, but after years of hard work, I am no longer young. <laughs> All right, one more and then we'll, we're gonna get serious. Adulthood is like looking both ways before you cross the street and then getting hit by an airplane. <laughs> All right, let's pray, it's kind of come to that. Holy Spirit, come back. Jesus will love you. Let's do something different. I'm going to invite you to stand while we pray. Jesus, I pray that you're already here. And I, I, I pray, I thank you that you're here. And I pray that today would be a day of awakening, a great awakening. We do pray for the nation of Romania and Ukraine. We even pray for Russia and all the surrounding areas. And we pray that revival breaks out there. We know that nothing is impossible for you. So if we know that nothing's impossible for you, the miracle working God, we're going to trust that you have already solved this problem. You've already proved that... Everything that we need has been paid for at the cross, and so we love you. I pray for the ears of the listener today. I pray that you would anoint the speaker and speak, Holy Spirit, speak. Your servants are listening, and we're here. We'll love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I've always had tremendous respect. Oh, you may be seated. I'm sorry. <laughs> you didn't read my mind? <laughs> I've always had tremendous respect for ministries like uh, Sean Foyt's uh, Let Us Worship, big corporate healings, big revivals, and you know, I'm thinking like guys like Lou Ingalls, The Sinned, and um, Randy Clark's uh, School of Healing and Impartation. When going after healing, and there's there's just seems to be corporate breakthrough for healing, just all across the auditorium, those, those big rooms. I have tremendous respect for that. But it's never been really the cry of my heart. Actually, the, the cry of my heart is that in our day-to-day -day lives, that we would be able to do that. So it's, imagine you're walking to the grocery store, you're walking through the parking lot, going up to HB and suddenly your right leg starts hurting and you're like, huh, it was fine just a second ago. And as you're thinking, what did I possibly do to make my leg hurt? You start to think, well, maybe this is a word of knowledge. I've heard them talk about this. Maybe God's telling me somebody has a, a, a hurt leg. And so you pray, God, is this you? Is, is this a word of knowledge? And immediately you get a picture of a, a guy in a red sweatshirt. And so as you're in the store, you're scanning the room looking for somebody. And sure enough, there's somebody with a red sweatshirt. And, and so like, am I going to get brave? Am I going to take the risk? I think that God was speaking to me, telling me. And so you ask him, you know, are you having any problems with your leg? And like, yeah, I was in a car accident and, uh, a couple days ago. And like, how did you know that? Well, I'm a Christian. And the Lord speaks to me, and I'd love the opportunity to pray for you. And I've seen the Lord do miracles. And so you take the risk. That's the cry of my heart, that we bring this out into our day-to-day. -day. 
That's the reason why I went back to school. The school is a supernatural school with a focus on prophetic words and healing. And I thought, I'm going to join this school, and I bet, they're, bet they'll give me like just the right things to say, like whatever it is that turns the key to, to get you know, the, the magic prayer. And, or maybe they'll lay hands on me, and there'll be like a form of impartation, and then suddenly I'm going to be anointed in giftings of the healing or uh, giftings of the prophetic or you know, just different supernatural gifts. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's going to be the key. And indeed... That happens. But what I found was it's not so much the right words that you pray. It's not even so much someone laying hands on you, though all of those things are important, and all of those things happen. Actually, what I found is that the determining factor is the level at which I am pursuing the Lord. When I pursue God, when I get in communion with Him, then that opens up the opportunity for the Lord to, to use me. He actually wants to use us in all of those kinds of ways. Think of the, the disciples. It's a bunch of, bunch of fishermen. Let it sink in a second. It's a bunch of fishermen. And then all of a sudden, they're going out and casting out demons, healing blind eyes. But they had followed Jesus around for three years. And we remember Jesus said in, in one part of the text, I am the light of the world. But then he said, you are the light of the world. Well, if we're the light of the world, that, ha- that gives us a responsibility, doesn't it? A responsibility of some pursuit. So when I was assigned this topic, I was kind of going... All, all through scripture in my head, trying to find, like, I wonder, wonder um, like, whose life should I use? I thought, well, maybe, maybe Esther. Esther had really not a, a, a great start, but she changed history. You know, we tell the story like it was a beauty contest, but it wasn't. Read the word. She was competing to sleep with the king, and yet the Lord changed history through her. Or you think about Saul, who later became Paul. Paul had a really bad start, and yet he ended up writing most of the New Testament. You know, Saul, before he was Paul, was responsible for killing Christians. This movement that was called the way, that would later become known as Christianity, he was responsible for killing those people. So maybe, maybe I could have used him, but I really can think of no better person than Solomon. You know, the, the challenge in life and often in our pursuit is the day-to-day, we pursue really anything other than God, don't we? You know, maybe... Uh, Maybe everything that we are, are pursuing could be quite good. Maybe it's very good stuff. Maybe we're pursuing our career or, or whatever, but it's, none of that should become extracurricular to God. So when I pursue my career, I work hard, and I'm the first one to, 
to get there, the last one to leave. And, you know, I'm really working hard, doing everything that I'm told, do extra things for the boss so that maybe we get noticed. But I'm, I'm singularly career focused. Or maybe it's a relationship, perhaps even your spouse. And we work on our relationship almost as though we're trying to earn, his, earn love out of that. And that becomes the only thing that we focus on is working on relationships. Now, I'm not saying your career relationships are bad. But are they taking the place of God? Maybe it's money. You're going after paychecks. You're going after sales commissions and bonuses. And all of those things are amazing. We can't fund things like this relief effort that we're doing in Romania without money. You can't fund your household without money. So that's not inherently bad. But if it becomes the predominant focus, if I live to earn money, that's becoming a problem. Maybe it's things. And speaking of things, spring's coming. Maybe you need like a new bass boat. Maybe you need a new truck. Maybe you need a new house, a second house, a bigger house. You see, it's not that work or that relationships or that money are inherently bad things. They're all very good things. They may even be gifts from God. But they never take the focus of God. You say, hey, I'm doing good. I'm earning a paycheck. I pay tithes. I donate to charities. I employ a whole bunch of people. I'm doing good. And maybe you are doing good, but are you doing God? Our focus has to be God. I love the story of Solomon. He had, he didn't have a bad start like those other examples. He had an amazing start. First of all, he's the son of King David, a man after God's own heart. You're kind of already set up to win there, aren't you? Like David, this guy who, even though he failed, trust me, he failed, but still pursued God. And God called him a man after my own heart. So this is Solomon. He, he's now the third king in Israel. He approaches, God approaches Solomon in Second Chronicles wanting to bless him and and God says, ask what I shall give to you. And in Solomon's response, he didn't ask him for money or palaces or a brand new Tesla with spinners. <laughs> he says, give me wisdom and knowledge. And what was God's response? Because of your heart, you didn't ask for possessions and wealth. Not only will I grant you wisdom and knowledge, but I will also give you riches and honor, the likes of which no king before you or after you will ever experience. And so Solomon gets blessed. Even his horse stables, I, I put a picture in the slide deck. Those are Solomon's horse stables. They're still used to this day as a, a Muslim mosque. Solomon. 
Solomon was so wise that the queen of Sheba came to, to test him with hard questions. But after she had her questions all answered, when she saw his house, the clothing that his servants were wearing, even the food on his table, she says to him, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you. I don't know how you set a table so well that it causes people to say there must be a God. <laughs> Solomon had a great start. Even the economy of Israel was so prosperous that the Bible says silver became as common as stones. But Solomon's amazing start had a tragic finish. And we're going to kind of pick it up near the end of it. If you brought your Bibles, open them up. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you find Psalms, which is thereabouts in the middle, turn right and you get to Proverbs. Turn right and you get to Ecclesiastes. Sometimes books get raptured from the Bible. It's usually when people are watching you and you're like, I know it was there yesterday. <laughs> so Solomon, you know, he becomes the king of a fully united Israel. And after him, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. First was the northern kingdom called Israel and second was the southern kingdom called Judah. And even in Jesus' time, Israel was a part of Roman of Rome. They were no longer a united nation again until modern history in 1948. Now, the book of Proverbs was written to show you a life that's yielded to God. Okay? Also by, written by Solomon. The book of Ecclesiastes was written to show you what happens when your life is no longer yielded to God. And you're going to kind of catch the tension of that. When even the gifts of God no longer satisfy. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Behold, this was also vanity. So now we see he's pursuing pleasure. We're only going to read, by the way, one of these. But it goes on and on and on and on for 10 chapters. I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which the, to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. Okay, pause. Just because it's in the Bible does not mean that God condones it. It's very critical that we understand that. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. You know what a concubine is? They would sleep with the king, but the, the child didn't have any rights to the throne. 
And of course, the woman had no rights. But this was at a culture of a time when they didn't uphold women. I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept, my, kept from my heart no pleasure. Found pleasure in my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expanded in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after a wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You're like, I thought you said that the Bible was supposed to make you feel better. No, the Bible is real. It's about real life. You can, you can almost hear the tone of his voice and the disappointment in his voice, the disappointment in himself and this life that he's read. You can almost, you can almost see, maybe even as an older man, analyzing everything that's happened in his life. And how many of you go to bed at night and relive the mistakes of the day? You're like, oh, man, I missed that. You've been in this pursuit of everything else, but maybe turn God into an extracurricular activity, which is exactly what happened to Solomon. And you and I are no different. We turn on the news and we become politically focused and everything is all about politics and that becomes our thing, right? And then, then pretty soon you start becoming super political and that becomes your predominant focus. And, or, you know, maybe you get war obsessed and I'm not saying be un, uh, uninformed. You should be informed, but is it your only focus? Of course, we've already talked about the typical traps that, particularly in our culture, that we fall in, our career, our money. This is the reason God told Moses in Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. It wasn't because God is some attention-starved being who needs your constant recognition. That wasn't why. It's because he knows you. And he knows who you become when your pursuit places him as an external afterthought. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Now, in that context, he's actually talking about money. You cannot serve God and money, he says. But take that word and replace it with whatever God that you've created. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and your career. You cannot serve God and your relationships. You cannot serve God. God and your paychecks. You cannot serve God and pleasure. All of those things are good, but they cannot take you away from God. Well then, what does all this mean? Should we just like should just become monks and do nothing but God? Should we do nothing but church? A lot of you have been to churches where that hasn't worked. 
You know, you fill your calendar with church events and church activities, and then pretty soon you find yourself, you only hang out with church people, and church life becomes a performance-driven instead of God-focused. So then you could say, well, you cannot serve God in, in church. A lot of us have confused God with church. So what do you do? Haddon Robinson points out that in one old recipe book for rabbit, anybody ever had rabbit? One, two, three, several of you, okay. I myself have not. Points out that rabbit started out with this injunction. First, catch the rabbit. The writer knew how to put first things first. That's what we do when we establish our priorities. So in this context, what's our priority? Our priority is what? It's an open book test. God. We put things that should be in first place in their proper order. You see, it's not so much that you can't be a good spouse, a good employee, even a good friend without God. You can it's this that you can be all of those things so much better with God. I heard a pastor one time say that the Lord doesn't create a person and then create that person's purpose. But the Lord creates the purpose and wraps a person around it. That you were created with a purpose in mind. Just you. Your parents maybe didn't want you, but God did. God knew your DNA of your mother and your father to create just the right person, just who you were supposed to be. God had all this plan. Remember, he tells Jeremiah, before you were in the womb, I knew you. I got a little off script, but I think it fit. So instead of compartmentalizing different areas of your life, which kind of gives you this opportunity for you to bring God into every focus of your life. You're in a strategy meeting at work. Don't you think that God can strategize better than you? Like he's probably already just waiting for you to ask him, hey, uh, like, what do? What's next? So how about... How about you pray before you get into that meeting? You spend some time in his presence. You align your heart to his heart. And you pray that the Lord would make solutions known. You're having an argument with your spouse or your neighbor or whoever. Don't you think that putting God in the driver's seat would enable you to see the other person through God's eyes? Instead of just pursuing winning the argument. The Lord is always redemptive in nature. He's going he's gonna to help you to seek to preserve the relationship, to nourish the relationship, as opposed to just trying to win an argument, relationship be damned. Damned is in the Bible, for those of you who are like, oh. <laughs> the Lord is always redemptive in nature. Check out this verse in John chapter 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, 
and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John chapter 107, excuse me, Psalm verse, chapter 107 verse 9 says, For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good things. Say that. My soul is filled with good things. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, we have a responsibility. Our responsibility is not to just come to events or be the best employee or earn the biggest paycheck or have the biggest house. Those may be all good goals. But our responsibility is to put God first no matter what. No matter what. No matter what, he's my number one. Jesus said, when I come back, will I find anybody with faith? He didn't say, when I come back, will I find someone with a really awesome truck? (laughs) When I come back, will I find someone with a beautiful lawn? All of those things are secondary. It is God who becomes our primary. Some of you need to take your keys and give them to God and get out of his chair. Placing God as our true north, pursuing him above all things, it removes the need to pursue wrong things, and it puts you into a position where you can fulfill your destiny. But most important, it moves you into a friendship with God. We've talked about this time and time again, that the, the, the Lord's number one goal was not to get you in heaven. It was to get you in relationship. Heaven is a beautiful benefit, but it's a benefit because of relationship, not because of some magic prayer. By the way, I'm not against prayers, provided they're aligned with worship and focus of God. I'm going to call up the worship team. You know, with God at the helm, I'm a better employee. With God at the helm, I'm a better neighbor. With God at the helm, I'm better. Because God is better. With God as my pursuit, I'm his friend. I'm not driven by worthless things. And I do worthwhile things better. But first, you must catch the rabbit. But first, you must put the Lord first. You want to know what is the meaning of life? A lot of people wake up and they're like, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? It's to know God. The meaning of life is to know God. You were created for relationship. Relationship with God becomes friendship. Friendship comes from your pursuit. Your breakthrough is in your pursuit. Remember Solomon, after pursuing power and prestige and possessions, ultimately, at the end, he called it all meaningless. 
His conclusion in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he says, remember your creator. Fear God and keep his commandments. That word fear is not being afraid of him like he's going to hit you. Some, some of you maybe have this misconception that God's like, Gabriel, look what he did. Wreck his car. <laughs> That's not God. Now, fear God is having a reverence for him, a respect of him, an awe of him, a love of him, a passion of him. So when you see people raising their hands in worship, what, what this, this pose is, is that, this is actually saying, hey, I surrender. I surrender. I surrender to you. I surrender to your will. I'm handing you the keys to my car. I surrender. Will you stand in worship with us?